This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Asia Torah. Let's try it again. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here at Asia Torah in the old city of Jerusalem overlooking the Western Wall. And today we're discussing a little bit about the relationship between prophecy and, and psychedelic medicines, uh, plant medicines or chemical compounds that cause psychedelic experience in one's uh, brain. And the, and they're, they're related in how we, how, what we have to gain from this is that, is that those are things are, uh, psychedelic medicines are very dangerous for someone who's not ready for them. They don't have a vessel for that amount of exposure to, to a reality that's the reality, way beyond the reality that we are privy to. See, the reality you see around you, everything you see around you, uh, the room you're in or the car you're driving, if you're listening to this in a car or wherever you are, the reality around you is not being fully experienced, quite the opposite. It's your filters that are, it's being filtered out as much as possible. And not only that, but you're even helping it get filtered out. Kabbalistically, God's light's getting filtered out of things, and there's much more light that's all around you, but it's being filtered right now. And that's good. Because otherwise, you you know you'd I don't know what you'd probably brush your teeth on your forehead, and the and the uh, so things are getting filtered out. But not only that, you're filtering a tremendous amount. You know, much stimulations coming your way right now, and you're filtering it so you can pay attention to me. So you're in constant filtering, and that's what we do. We focus. We we when we drive a car, there's a lot going on, but boy, do we filter out everything so that we stay safe and keep our eye on the car in front of us and the cars in the lanes next to us. We are, we are focused beings that filter out as much as possible and how much you're filtering out. I run a seminar on personal transformation built off everything I'm speaking about right now and the uh, coming to New York this Sunday to Brooklyn and this following Sunday to Muncie, New York, for men and women. Brooklyn's just men. Anyway, but all that filtering that we're doing is... Um, is kind of uh, something that we love. We'll watch people. We will pay money to watch people focus. <laughs> like, I can also throw a ball through a hoop, a hoop that it fits through. I mean, it does fit. And I can throw a ball through it, but I can't necessarily do that from a great distance and over and over again. And, but I would like to spend 50 bucks on a ticket to watch someone else do so, <laughs> which <laughs> the truth is I wouldn't really want to. There's other things I would rather spend money on, like, for example, hearing uh, Steve Morse play guitar. And anyone who's never heard of Steve Morse, as soon as this class is over, you immediately go online and check out Steve Morse. But you watch Steve Morse play a solo, and you realize he's focusing extremely at high speeds. And uh, his note choice, no matter how fast he goes, is, is it, even at high speed, seems to be playing slow, because how does he choose those notes with that care? And there's focus there, and I'll pay money for that. And I've seen him live many times. I've invested a lot, of, lot in these kinds of concerts where people have focused their creativity in music. And, and so we, we'll pay for focus. And what is focus? Focus is just filtering out everything else. And, and, but they're, they're, the problem is, is being overly focused. Is When you're overly focused, you can, things can turn drab. Things can turn bland. You know, and you, you, for example, you need to make a living, and to make a living, you're going to have to work. And, and working means you're not just fooling around all day. And the fact that you're not fooling around all day means that you're focused on something. 
But if you keep doing that over and over again, well, then all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And people go crazy. And then people start using substances that cause a diffuse focus, for example, alcohol or uh, cannabis or um, sports that will cause it. There, there's certain things. Uh, going camping. I mean, what, what's happening when we stare at that fire? Something happens. People can't not stare at a campfire. But that campfire is right in the moment. There's not a lot of filter when you're staring at a campfire. And there's theories why that is. And, and uh, it's a similar thing. You know what another campfire is type thing where you can't stop staring at it? At least as you get older. Is uh, if there's a child in the room. Because they're so in the moment that you can kind of grab the magic back from being with them and watching them. And uh, which leads us to why a lot of people benefit from uh, psychedelic medicine is because they are reintroduced to the magic. They're, they are able to see, a br they're able to move from a overly focused, ordered world, filtering out all distraction, but it's become rote and mundane and no longer serves its purpose, which was uh, either to pay your bills, it maybe pays your bills, but the point was to enjoy your life. And you've now just become a cog in a wheel. And, and you can keep that job, but you can keep it with magic. And it also can lose its, even a Jewish ritual can lose its, its um, magic and purpose very quickly. And we repeat prayer three times a day, the same exact prayer. And, and uh, we do a lot of things with regularity. And and if you don't keep the magic, well, then it's going to die on you. And, and unfortunately, many people's Judaism is DOA, is dead on arrival. And it's not that they shouldn't keep doing it. And how do you keep doing something that's DOA, that's dead on arrival? And by the way, the only way to revive something isn't to quit. The way you revive something is by sticking with it and then doing the necessary to whatever it is, whatever process it will be, to resuscitate it. But stopping it altogether is not going to be helpful. And this is what's called in Judaism is being what's called an Evid Hashem. Evid Hashem, or for females called a Shifchat Hashem. And what that is, is on that ladder, Jacob's ladder, what is Jacob's ladder? Jacob's ladder goes toward the earth, which is a peculiar way of saying things because I've never seen a ladder going towards the earth. It's on the earth. <laughs> if the ladder ain't on the earth, it's floating. And that just doesn't happen. But, but notice the language is it's towards the earth. Yeah, Mutsav Artsa, towards the earth. Strange language, something worth discussing. Maybe not now, though. And it's head, the head of the ladder, the top of the ladder is in heaven. It goes to the heavens. And that's the ladder we climb. That's why you're here right now. That's why you're listening to this. It's because you're on Jacob's ladder. And, uh, and to really focus you, or unfocus you, is the is that is that part of that climb is getting to rungs that will blow your mind away. But that wouldn't be good to have your mind blown away. So therefore, you can't access those rungs. Now, obviously, the top of the ladder is prophecy, and no one's going near those rungs because that would completely, you know, it would obliterate your your mind because you're not a vessel for that. It would totally obliterate you. But there are rungs that we could reach, but it takes courage. And, and part of that courage is, is in various steps that we have to 
do to get higher up the ladder. But you don't lose the lower rung. And what is that lowest rung? The lowest rung is to serve God for no reason. Serving God for no reason. Not a lot of fun, not very exciting, hardly romantic. But I'm putting on my tefillin no matter what. I don't care what mood I'm in. I don't care what just happened to me. I don't care about the getting, you know, this happened, that happened, bad news. Um, you know, a phone call with bad news or, or you know, throwing up with a fever. You know, or, or the, the person who turned me on to wearing tefillin in the first place has decided I'm a no-good Nick. I'll show him. No, I'm putting my tefillin on no matter what. That's service. That's the bottom rung. And what does it mean to be an Eved Hashem? What's the word Eved mean? Slave. slave. Literally, it means slave. So what does it mean to be a slave of God? Well, you learn from slaves. What's a slave? Let's say a slave. Let's say your master. Let's say your master asks you to bring buckets of water to the roof so he can have a shower. And it's three stories up. And it's a lot of buckets of water to fill that tank so he can enjoy his nice 20-minute shower. And so imagine you're, you've already done about an hour's worth of carrying buckets up to the roof, and you've you got about three hours left. And you run into the boss on the staircase. Can you imagine saying to your master, can you imagine saying to him, you know, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> what would your master say? <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, like, what does that have to do with anything. And you're like, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> I'll just get back to work you know, and start lifting the things. So you're, you're, you know, you're feeling it, not feeling it. That's what the first rung of Jacob's ladder is. Feeling it or not, I'm a servant, period. With or without knowledge, with or without understanding, with or without the magic, with or without feeling, with or without the romantic levels of God. and I'm there. And now, what's so important about that level? Who wants it? Nobody. You want, you want that to be your life? You want to live a Judaism like that? You want that kind of Judaism? Ain't nobody going to want that, yeah? Or how do we say? Ain't nobody got time for that, yeah? Nobody got time for that, but you better have time for that because life's a roller coaster, especially if you're Jewish. You're going up and down all the time, and you're going to have downs where you've got to have that rung. But I'll give you another reason why the latter is this, an amazing, this amazing analogy. And it's because, let's say you're on a, I don't know, a 20-rung ladder, which is a big ladder. You know, you're two and a half stories high on a 20-rung ladder. Now, let's say you're standing up on the 18th rung. You're way up there. Your head's already at the third story beginning. You know, you're way high off the ground. Now, are you glad there's a bottom rung? Are you glad about the lower rungs? You happy about those? Yeah, why are you happy about those? Well, that'd be helpful too, but you could probably jump the last five, six feet. What do you, what's good about the rungs at the bottom of a ladder? <laughs> they're, they're holding the ladder up. Yeah, I've seen cartoons as a kid where the cat's being chased by the dog. I mean, what was the name? Tom, Tom. Tom and Jerry. Tom and Jerry. Was Tom? And Jerry was the dog? No. Oh, that's not going to help. There was another one with a, a dog and a cat. Oh, really? Yeah, I think you're right. So anyway, what happens? The cat is being chased by the dog. He's about to get eaten. And he runs up this ladder. And, and the dog, you know, can't run up a ladder like a cat can, so he's kind of below. And the, but what happens? For every rung the cat touches, the rung falls out. 
And after a while, he's, it splits. And the cat falls, and the dog's like, ah, and the cat runs. You know? And the, you need the lower rungs to hold your ladder together. And this goes in all relationships, because ultimately we're talking about relationships. And you have to have, for example, in marriage, something that works when there's no magic. Because we don't believe in divorce when the magic's gone. Those I hear people always say, uh, we fell out of love. <laughs> we fell out. We don't love each other anymore. Or whatever I've heard over the years. You know, obviously there's there's a time for divorce and that's otherwise there wouldn't be a, an entire tractate of Talmud explaining how to get it done. You know, because it's not a simple task in Judaism. Uh, it requires, you know, it's not simple to to defrag or deconstruct uh, a union of two souls that happens in in Jewish marriage, and so it, it's a whole. It has to be written out by a scribe on parchment. It's a, it's a whole big deal, and it has to be done. Civil marriage does nothing to that bond. So you're married to that person forever until, until that thing is created. That thing is called a get, by the way. I don't know how you spell that in English. I guess G, put two T's maybe. But you can put one T. It stands for get lost. So the, but the, you can have, that's called a get. Um, anyway, but you, in marriage and in all relationships, you don't always feel it. With children, like what, you don't feel it, so you're not going to feed them? They're not going to call their teacher who need, who's waiting for a phone call because your kid's not acting right, or you don't feel you're not feeling love right now because they're frustrating you. So those bottom rungs of the ladder are very important, and it and it really separates the uh, the child from the adult. That those bottom rungs separates them. Because think about it, like there's societies like Southern California where you only do what you feel like doing. Now, not everyone in Southern California lives like that, but I know a lot of people who do. Um, but here, what's the key word in there based on our subject? You only do what you feel like doing. What's the key word there? Feel. Yeah. And what if you don't feel like it? Now what? Now what happens? You're out? You know, and the and East Coast is represented by people doing things they don't feel like doing, but it's right. They, they do things they don't feel like doing, but it's the right thing to do. And they'll do it. Maybe they'll do it short. Maybe they'll do it quick. Maybe they'll pay someone to do it. But it gets done because it's right, even though they didn't feel like it. And believe me, I get cases all the time. Right now I got a case of a suicidal person, seriously suicidal person, whose, uh, whose uh, wife has left him with the children. She left with the kids. And... A seriously suicidal person with an autoimmune disease that's eating his body. And I needed two grand. Now, you th- what coast do you think I started sending WhatsApps to? Yeah, so not, not one. I got plenty of people on the West Coast. Not one WhatsApp went to the West Coast. Every WhatsApp went to the East Coast and it went specifically to people who do what they don't feel like doing. Now, I don't know what will happen. It's two grand is what's needed right now to deal with some rehabilitation stuff. But, but we'll see what happens. But, but I, I was hitting East Coasters who will do what they don't feel like doing. If you think about it, that is the difference between a child and an adult. But you meet a lot of people who, let's say, get close to Judaism, who weren't raised close to Judaism. They get close to Judaism. They get this fire into them. 
that they're just going for it. And they, uh, but they lack the maturity of the tenacity that it takes to continue on that path when the roller coaster's on a downswing. They lack that tenacity. They're so used to being high, and the latest high is Judaism. And and Ju- but it's not high right now because God's obviously finding them pretty worthy. <laughs> you think about it. If you're constantly gifted, intense feeling in your Judaism, that means God's like God's betting on you. He likes you a lot because he's putting lights where most people don't have them, and things are things are glowing and. And you know you, you're you're favored right now, big time, and you should use that big time. But the uh, but you're particularly favored if he takes the lights away, because that means now you're going to need some muscles. You need some muscles and tenacity and commitment, and to be able to be consistent where you don't want to be. And that that, as I said before, separates the adults from the child because I don't feel like it right now but it's right and that the adult says but it's right and the child says well I don't feel like it and from there you reach a new a new vista because when you serve or relate to a spouse or anyone or in work or anything you do if you relate to it as a commitment without a reason and without feeling without anything else but it's right and you, you relate to it that way, you do get new vistas that you could never, listen carefully, you get to new vistas that you could never have achieved without it. You understand? That muscle that can pull you through something when you're no longer feeling it, but you do it anyway because it's right, will bring you to a vista. A vista meaning a, a vision, a, a, a revelation in your growth that could never have been achieved had you not had the staying power to stay consistent when you don't see the light. And it's the same thing in marriage. It's I'm in no matter what. There are no reasons that pull me out of this thing. I'm in. Nothing's, nothing, nothing will take me away from you, says someone to their spouse. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can say. I'm in. And... And then in even the darkest times, you will see the light in the future because of that level of commitment. Now, of course, that's very rough when the other person doesn't have it. And who knows what the, you know, you get wounded people. There are wounded people. But anyway, for us is that, is that to have the experience of expanded consciousness, it takes certain things. So I'd like to discuss some of those things that it takes to get to expanded consciousness. So we discussed one already. One is consistency. That's unreasonable. When I say unreasonable, meaning unreasonable. I don't let reason stop me. I'm, I'm serving no matter what bottom rung of the ladder is ne- not disappearing. So that's number one is, is, is serious, heavy-duty commitment. Uncompromising commitment. Whether I feel it or not, it's the adult and the uh, another thing is to have the maturity to not have to have things your way not having to have things your way and perhaps this is why 
to make it anywhere in Kabbalistic uh, circles, and certainly on the ladder towards prophecy, that it requires being married. Because when you're married, it's not always going to be your way. And it's quite often not your way. And, and just add kids. And it's like, it's just not your way over and over again. And after a while, you... I mean, there are times where you feel like you're going crazy. You know, sometimes you feel like you're just going to go nuts. And especially if you have a lot of kids, you feel like you're just losing it. And by the way, it's hard to know how many kids to have exactly. You know, and one guy walked in with 12 kids in a secular Holocaust survivor lady just looked at this guy in, an old, in her old folks home and she said how many and, he, and the Hasidic man looked at her and said till six million and so it's hard to know exactly how many kids to have you obviously want to have many because if you're Jewish you're not creating more overpopulation meaning you're not creating more problem you're creating solution and we want to create as much of that solution as possible and raise your kids as solutions to the world's problems. That's what it, the Jewish people are meant to be. So raise your kids as solutions. So you want to have a lot. Uh, but on the other hand, you don't want to go totally crazy. So you got to figure out what you can handle. And I'll tell you, one of the things that's not of, uh, in the criteria of how many children to have is, is your finances. Why? Well, there's various reasons why. One of the reasons is because one of the reasons is because each kid comes with their own mazel. We have a tradition that each kid comes with their own bank account, so to speak, their own mazel. You don't feed your kids. Your kids feed your kids, meaning God feeds your kids, and each kid you add to your home is a new, it's a new mazel. That's one of the beauties of getting married is you, whatever your mazel is, it's being joined by someone else's mazel. And so if you've kind of had lousy mazel and you marry someone with pretty good mazel, well, now you have medium mazel, and that, that's going to be good for you. And I, and I, for sure, I have very powerful mazel, and, and I, my kids and my wife have learned to rely on that, which is great because it's caused them to have very good mazel as well. And the, but, the, but when you have a child, that's not your job to pay for that child. That's, that's their mazel. Now, obviously, if you're living uh, in, with luxuries and, and you're, just, you're just an expensive carbon footprint on this world, well then, you know, getting your kids paying for all that, and maybe that's off, off. You know, that's not part of the deal. <laughs> like, like, it could be that if you're going to have a big family, and and you don't want finances to be cons of concern because you're going to utilize this fact that each kid brings their own mazel, their own. When I say the word mazel, for those of my Gentile students who don't know what that means, it means that each person comes with their own. Um, uh, a mazel is a. a the truth is, it's a zodiac disposition. The word zal means flow, and a mem before the word means a cause of flow. Mem is always causative, the m sound. So mazal means the cause of flow, and every person has a certain zodiac flow that is their mazal. And, and in fact, the word zal means uh, liquid as well. And like liquid soap in Hebrew is called sabon, that's soap, noslim means liquid, nozlim, zal, okay? And the, anyway, every person has a mazal, and, and uh, it's interesting, the Jewish people's mazal is, every Jewish person has mazal as well, and, but their mazal is irrelevant regarding the day-to-day, -day. meaning people's mazal really shifts. There's different influences by day, because think about it. What is your, 
zodiac. It's based on a birthday. Well, what's a birthday? Birthday is a day in the calendar. Well, the calendar is shifting all year, which means that your mazal is going to have a different influence each day based on the calendar shifts. Except the Jew, as we learned from Abraham, and this is this week's Parsha introduces Abraham, and it's exactly the Parsha, where Abraham says he's not going to have another kid, and God's like, yeah, oh yeah, you are. That's this week. Lech Lecha. God's going to cause this 90-year-old man to, uh, or no later, he's going to be 99, I think, when he will conceive uh, Jacob with his 90-year-old wife, who was barren. And the and so, and so he, uh, Abraham has a conversation with God, and, and this is a midrashic uh, tradition. And by the way, the word medrash means a, a oral tradition that's there to teach us. Our, it's our tribal oral tradition that comes down the history of our tribes, the Jewish tribes, that are there to teach you these amazing lessons about reality. So are they, are they, are they literal? No. Are they there to teach you about reality? Well, I thought reality is literal. Isn't reality literal? And the answer is, if you ever want to understand reality, you're going to have to understand nuance. Nuance is a very important part of reality. You know, try having a conversation with a human being without being somewhat understanding of nuance. That's the, that's the danger of Asperger's is they don't see human, you know, they don't see nonverbal communication. There's nuance. You know, how do you know a conversation's over, for example? The person you're talking to, or it might be you, will turn your foot in the direction you're going. Every human being does that. So let's say I'm talking to Sam over here, and I realize what time it is, and I gotta go. You'll just see my left, if I gotta go this way, you'll see my left foot go like that. And you will end it. I don't have to end any conversation, you'll end it. Because you get nuance. And that nuance lets you know, let's wrap this up with honor for both of us. And, and it will get wrapped up. But there are people who won't see that. Uh, one of those ones is the famous Asperger's, which is you know, some highly skilled and amazing people have, and it's hard to notice that they have it. And Well, you better be a very committed woman or man to be married to someone with Asperger's, because they're going to miss it all. All that nonverbal stuff that happens between man and wife will never be experienced by them. And so... Marry someone with Asperger's. Well, you better be. We spoke about it earlier. You better be committed, like way more than ninety-nine percent of humanity, that you're willing to not have someone recognize your nonverbal cues. Now, um, the anyway. So, so medrash is for nuance, and nuance is very important. You know, nuance is everything, really. You know, we do have you know hard facts, but then there's nuance. And nuance is super important, and that's why we have the Medrash to teach us about the nuances. So this particular Medrash talks about Abraham having a conversation with God, because as you look in the Parsha, God says, I'm, you're going to have another kid. So what you don't see there, you have to click on the Medrash. The Medr- then it takes you to the website where the Medrash explains, the oral tradition explains, that God says to Abraham, sorry, Abraham says back to God, I'm not going to have another kid. And, and God's like, looks at him like, you tell him, you're going to tell God what's going on with your progeny? And, and Abraham says, you know, excuse me, Rabbi, but I'm the master of, like, Zodiac. I know Zodiac, and I know my Zodiac disposition. I even know my star, my heavenly body is Jupiter. It's called, in Hebrew, Tzedek. 
I'm, my heavenly body is Jupiter. And based on where Jupiter was in the sky when I was born, no kids. At which point, God says to him, Take your protein pill and put your helmet on. And he's looking down at Jupiter now. He's way above the zodiac. He's looking down at Jupiter and he's like, whoa. And all of a sudden, Jupiter, God, I don't know what he does. He goes, Whoosh, and Jupiter goes like, Whoosh, and like, he's meaning just to show out Abraham, you know, that he's the one who put Jupiter where it was and he can put Jupiter wherever he wants. Did God, you think God moved Jupiter in this story? <laughs> I highly doubt that God moved Jupiter at that point in the story. But God in the story says he moves Jupiter and, and to show Abraham where, who's in charge here and, and it goes to where Abraham's going to have kids, so to speak, but it doesn't say that in the Medrash. And uh, because God probably didn't move Jupiter and I don't even know what would happen to our solar system if God decided to take a a body in our so our solar system that big and move it. I don't know what would even happen if such a thing happened. Anyway, the um, and then Abraham says, "I guess I'm, I guess I better go buy some a crib and a stroller, you know, because by the time he came back down, you know, things were in process, and lo and behold, kids came, and not just a few, like a bunch of kids. He had uh, Yishmael with." with Hagar, he had Isaac with Sarah and then he remarries after Sarah's death he, he, uh, a woman named Keturah who our tradition tells us it was actually the original Hagar that he married Keturah which means incense, had six kids sent him eastward to the land of the east and that's why Hinduism, like the highest caste is Brahmin from Abraham it's, it's their traditions come all from Abraham, those six kids Different class, but I, I've got that class online somewhere. Now, um, you have to be able to let go of reality. You have to be able to loosen up your grip. Human beings are terrible at that. I mean, really horrible at that. We, we are... We are really, we're really good at kind of ossification. We, we, we. This is the problem with elderly people. Elderly people, they, they've just done the same patterns long enough that they've lost all their neuroplasticity, which is again why they love to stare at children, who have all their neuroplasticity. I mean, think about it. Once you're in your sixties, ninety-five percent of what you're even seeing is, is just predictive models. It does exist out there, but you don't see it. You're in your predictive models. And that's why you'll notice they're less and less with a trait of openness because they just don't want to mess with their predictive models and you don't want to take them out of their comfort zone too much. People will get older. 70s, you know, they just don't want much else than... They like to watch. You know what they really like to watch is uh, television because it's very predictable what the what each actor will do on that when I say television I mean specifically uh, sitcoms and other dramas where you know the character you can guess what they're going to do in every situation but the situations change up every episode just enough so that they sense there's novelty but but everyone's acting predictably 
and the um, and so the the but that's a, a that is very detrimental to spiritual attainment. And one of the beauties of spiritual achievement, which is obviously the goal in Judaism, is that your neuroplasticity stays. Did you know that elderly Jewish spiritual seekers who like spent years and years and years seeking have the neuroplasticity of children, of little little ones, like real little ones. They have the neuroplasticity of children. I remember one of the elders said to said to our class once we were learning esoteric knowledge, and and he said, you know the difference between you and I, because we're all blown away by the last idea. And he says, you know the difference between you and I. He said, you will take everything, what you will take what you just learned and see how to fit it into everything you've ever known. He says, I, and he's like many years our senior, I am now readjusting everything I've known. <laughs> to what we've just learned. That's how, that's how plastic his, his brain is. I mean, he was literally going to have an amazing day of reconfiguring everything he ever knew based on this you know, really beautiful thing we had just learned. While the rest of us were like, okay, let's see where this fits in. And, and we, were, we were quite young. I mean, we were all... Uh, that night, I think I was in my 30s at the time, and and uh, here we are with this elderly, you know, Kabbalistic wizard who's now readjusting everything for this one piece of knowledge that doesn't even relate to what we wouldn't think relates to anything other than the subject, and it, but it does, and he knows how it does because of his, his uh, understanding the network of this divine prophet, prophetic body of wisdom. It's all deeply networked. And so, now, the, what, why are we discussing being able to let go? The reason we're discussing being able to let go is because you want your mind blown, but you don't want it blown to bits. You understand? You want your mind blown, but not blown to bits. And, and if you are going to resist where the wisdom takes you, meaning the wisdom's taking you way beyond anywhere you were in the past, if you are going to resist that, well, it's going to blow you away. You know, you, you've got to practice surrender. It's called surrender. and You have to practice surrender. And when I'm talking, saying surrender in this case, when I, I, I want to be specific. That I'm talking about the kind of surrender that, in a very mature surrender, that that you're able to put on hold everything you've ever known and allow yourself to be shown something you know uh, bigger and bigger and at the expense of what you've known till now and so yeah, that's a big letting go and not everyone's quite ready for that and but based on how ready you are for that is how much light you can get, is how much light you can receive, and therefore go up a rung on Jacob's ladder. So the the requirement of the, to get up higher on the ladder requires this level of maturity of being able to let go and and to receive that. Kobe.
Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, no, even though, so, so it's interesting you're bringing that up. Um, the question, if you didn't hear the question, is uh, wouldn't that point to something in common with the other world's traditions? And not just Abrahamic traditions, but other traditions. <laughs> I mean, really anything. Military, like how do you join the military without surrendering to your officers and your commanders and sergeants? And so... Um, but yeah, the, I think everything requires a certain amount of surrender to get anywhere. So, but but that's about where the commonality would end is is that to get anywhere you need a certain level of surrender. You were in the military, right? Mm -hmm. Was it easy to surrender? At first, very much so. Like you still have the idea of who you are and what like you do. So it's very difficult at first. They chip away at it. Well, earlier when I said it was interesting that you brought up the other world traditions, is that uh, those traditions is that is I was speaking about this the other day, but I got uh, distracted. Is you have to think about what you're doing when you mess with someone who believes in false traditions. And when I say false traditions, what I mean by the, that, they're not necessarily false traditions, but they're, they're root, meaning their foundations, their, their genesis, the beginnings of them, were not based on something that was true. But, but today, you know, they, many of them make up the hearts and minds of much of the fabric of, create, of traditions and homes of every household in the world has some traditions. And anyway, but here's the thing. Is the, this is what I wanted to share, is that when someone has surrendered to anything, you, you've got to think twice before you mess with those people. You've got to think twice about that. Because there's another word connected to surrender, and that's uh, uh, devoted, like you devote yourself. Surrender and devotion reach a place inside human human psyche and emotional circuitry that's that's sacred. Even if what they're into is not sacred, like for example, idolatry. To us, does Judaism consider idolatry sacred? Not at all. In fact, you know, punishable by death in Judaism. So not sacred, actually, the ultimate profane thing is idolatry. Yet there's people all over our planet and throughout history who have gone to that sacred place inside of them in dedication, devotion, surrender to something that's idolatrous. So they now have a sacred place inside of themselves, dedicated. And I think we've all maybe surrendered to someone, like we've surrendered our hearts to somebody. When maybe some of you, if you weren't raised protected like my children, uh, if you're raised more like me, thrown to the wolves, you probably gave your heart to someone who didn't really have the ability to care for it the way it should have been. And there was certainly no insurance policy, which is called marriage, and 
And so, but you surrendered a sacred part of you, and you'll notice that that place is still there, even if you're married, and even if you're married for years, and even if you have children, the sacred place of that, that surrender to that, of that, you know, surrendering that deep place of you has been given to somebody who may be married to someone else right now and playing with their own children and their hearts also in yours. And that, that will just be war wounds. You know, you'll just, you're just a, you're someone who's been through war and has got wounds and got big scars and whatnot. They're going to have to live the rest of their lives with that. And, and that's okay because, you know, we're, we're vulnerable and, and we... You know, we all go through all kinds of stuff, and and sadly, part of that is war wounds of relationships. And if you guys want to do your children a favor, you know, make sure you protect them until they're married, so that when they finally surrender that sacred place of the heart, it will be with someone who's placed a ring on the finger or gotten the ring on the finger, and and has, uh, and so that it's not a war wound later, but it's a uh, it's something that something very beautiful came from it, as opposed to something horribly painful. So, so they, anyway, I, I just wanted to mention that, because I think people are sometimes, when they're getting f- uh, a lot of fervor for something, you know, uh, either Christians feeling very fer- feverish about their Christianity, and now they're talking to a Jew, or, or Muslims talking to a Christian, or a, or a Jew who's really excited about their Judaism, now they're talking to one, a Muslim or a Christian or a Hindu or anyone else or an idolater. They can be insensitive to that sacred place that someone's gone to, even though it was for the profane. We have to be sensitive to that place of somebody. And, and you just can't be flippant about that place. That place is serious business. And um, and that being the case, also just one more takeaway from that is, is that you uh, a couple two more takeaways. One is you do want to go there. So if you haven't gone there in your Judaism, it has a, a little switch on the side, I think, to turn off the sound. Anyway, you do want to go there, and if you you do want to go there, meaning if you haven't gone there to that level of surrender. You're missing out, whether it's a relationship, whether it's Judaism, whether it's God, whatever it is that you're into. If you haven't gone there, you're not going to get the benefits because certain things only come with surrender, with vulnerability, with fragility. And, and it's very interesting that way and how fragility is, is, um, is where the magic is. And who's more fragile than the children? Toddlers. But they've got all the magic. They're the ones looking in with wonderment, and we look at them with wonderment, and, and they're the most fragile, and they've got the most vulnerability, and yet they've got the most magic. So there's a connection between fragility and, and magic, fragility and, and great depth of experience, and... and uh, and that fragility is exp- for human beings is expressed through surrender because we can make a move called surrender. We can make a move that takes us into a level of devotion that, that is way beyond what someone can achieve without it. You know, it's really light years ahead of that. 
And we need to go there. All of us need to go there. And there's certain people who that's really hard to go there for anything. Yeah. Ego's, ego's, yeah, his example was about ego. Um, but it can be a lot of other things, too. It can be um, your schedule. It could be Shabbat. Um, it could be your social life. You know, that's, that's going to be part of the surrender. Surrender is, like, pretty encompassing. That's definitely like to, to get the knowledge you're going to need to surrender to you can close the door to get to taekwondo to get become a get anywhere in martial arts there's going to be a lot of surrender to your your sensei your the master of the art that you're studying surrender is really important you don't really get anywhere without it and how many people we, do we know who are surrender resistant and again many of them are damaged they they did surrender and they got hurt and how many people do I know have surrendered to false traditions? You know, how many people you know surrendered to false traditions? You know, a lot of people surrendered there. So, so you can't get anywhere without surrender. But you also, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a gauntlet to make sure you don't surrender to the wrong things. And and. I want to mention one more thing that's interesting, that, it, that how magical surrender is, is that if you surrender to the wrong things, you'll still, you can still blow through walls and live in the miraculous. Because God put in our creation that someone surrendered to something will have miracles. Even if it's the wrong yeah, yeah. There's certain things, like, for example, rut's own desire. Have you ever w- wanted to do the wrong thing? Sure. God let you do it? Yeah. yeah. He even orchestrated it. Couldn't have happened without him orchestrating it. So, but you wanted it. That's the key phrase. Because you wanted it, you could even go against God. He put it in creation that anyone who wants something, that the world will conspire to help you get it. But also, surrender will lead to miracles for someone in the wrong tradition. And to them, they're like, well, there's verification. There mu- it must be true, this tradition I'm adhering to, because, gee, I surrendered to it, and I'm getting all these miracles and stuff. So one of, another thing we're learning about surrender is that it is not verify. It's not, it doesn't verify anything. All it verifies is you surrendered to something. You understand? That's all it verified. It didn't verify what you surrendered to is true. It just verifies that you're surrendered to something. It doesn't verify the veracity of that which you have dedicated to. So we have a code of ethics. When we know, we for most of the part, we would know what's good and what's not. How does somebody recognize the surrender to something good versus something not good? If God allows you to do it, regardless, all you have to have is desire or want, God lets you have it. So how does somebody learning on a first-time basis, how do they, how could you navigate through that? That's, that's, um, that's an excellent question. The um, So the... I mean, the, the, 
most people would never do what I'm going to say, but you actually have the courage to put it all on the table and see what's true, which is rare. I mean, Asia Torah was built on the this institution where I'm speaking from was built on predicated on the fact that human beings, which was a very short time, but it was somewhere around 1967 till about 2000. Maybe 1999, 2000, but it capped at 2006. It was over, but the uh, that people would be willing to put on the table everything out there and see what's real. And our entire, our entire, like our entire body of um, of intellectual property here is predicated on that people would do that. People would do that, and we had no idea people were going to stop doing that because it seems natural to do that. Um, so, but the answer is, is that you'd be willing to put it all on the table and and get to the truth. Truth to to the uh, what's the word? There's a there's a good saying. Truth to the yeah, truth to the utmost. There's one more word there. I forget what it was, but like meaning you'll sacrifice it all for it. And I got to live through that because I got here in 91. It was the second half of it, you know, 91 to 96 as opposed to 67 to 91. And uh, I got to be here for that. And, wow, I just can't begin to express to you the energy and excitement that was happening here. It was just unbelievable. And, and you, know what, you know who it drew more than anyone else? High, um, high IQ, successful... Um, confident for some reason quite beautiful and handsome people meaning it drew people who had an inordinate amount of confidence well if you grab all of world jewelry and you kind of take the cream off the top that's who came why affluent because they, they were raised in a home where they weren't they, you know, it's usually old money affluent that they weren't being raised thinking they were going to starve if they don't join the machine of, you know, the, mach- the machine of the financial world that you got to make a living and stuff. They were, they were affluent people. And they, and they're what I call, uh, you know what trust babies are? Trust babies are children born of very wealthy families. But then there's these searchers, which are kind of like hippies. So I call them trustafarians. And trustafarians are, are great. They're amazing. In fact, uh, you're in an institution built off of only trustafarians, and everything you hear here is because of those trustafarians. And, and those, they're amazing people. First of all, they're highly educated. They've been told that they can do anything they want, you know, they, meaning there's just no limitation built, on, built in. Their search for truth doesn't have an end, because think about it, the rest of the world, you could be the biggest hippie in campus, but... In the end, you got to pay your bills. So you're going to have to face reality. Cut your hair. Yeah. Trust a foreign, they don't have to cut their hair. They don't have to do anything. There's no obligations, and there's never going to be something they got to face later. They get to just keep searching and keep digging and keep, you know, clawing their way through this, this thick veil called material, physical world. And, and they happen to be particularly brilliant people, born of particularly brilliant people, because that's just the nature of the beast, is that affluent people, not always, but often, are of high IQ. And uh, there's a built-in hierarchy of, of brains and money. 
they go together. Brains and money go together. Not always. There are exceptions, but in the major part of the bell curve, brains and money are correlated. And now you got two brainy people having kids, and those kids were raised with affluence, and they they were being sold a bill of, a bill of American dream goods, which you know <laughs> you don't have to be a genius to poke a hole in that. You know, the American dream is like. You know, like, oh, that's cute. You know, you, you also want me to buy a big, giant bucket of steel that drills through gasoline like nobody's business while perpetrating Middle Eastern wars, you know, just so we can have our pipeline running through Afghanistan, you know, like, no. That, that doesn't sound sustainable to me as a somewhat smart, affluent kid growing up in the American dream. I, I don't want your dream because it's going to be someone else's nightmare. And in the end, it'll be all of our nightmares. We'll all inherit a nightmare. It's certainly not good for Israel. And now we're all paying that price with, this, uh, with a lack of security in a, in a Middle East fueled by the money of Western consumption. That's created the vulnerability that you experience as you sit here right now. So the uh, anyway, but that's who created this place, and and we we can we can put it all. And back to your question is, we can put it all on the table and work through things and come to something true that's worth dedicating our hearts to and surrendering to and going to the sacred place that it goes to. I'm in a particularly interesting situation because because I'm totally surrendered, but I'm in a position professionally where where. I allow to question it all because otherwise I can't have this job. I got to speak to a materialist atheist here two days ago sat where you're sitting and it's going to be a great video and that's going to be one of our better live feeds in a while. And um, I'm debating on the 24th here if you're all here. I'll be doing a live debate um, with an audience in the Kirk Douglas Theater. It'll be me and uh, Dr. Gerald Schroeder, who's a nuclear physicist who's witnessed, uh, uh, he's witnessed six nuclear explosions working for the U.S. government, and uh, he's a well-read author and, and created a lot of powerful scientific papers, and who's a believer, and, and the two of us will be going head-to-head -head against uh, uh, two famous atheist personalities on the, uh, you know, with their own YouTube channels. And, Stay tuned for that. <laughs> but it's very funny for me because, because you know, Dr. Schroeder is more intellectual. You know, he's a real talking head. I'm not a talking head. I am. I I live from this this place of surrender and dedication and devotion, and, which has no intellect. You know, it had intellect, but once I saw where I'm going, is you know, it's pointing north and it's right. When I saw that, and I saw everything's working, it all fits, and it's all, it makes sense, this thing. And, and so, but it is, I'm in an interesting position, because I can't walk in, I know how to talk about surrender, as you see I'm discussing it, but I know how to talk about that sacred place, but at the same time, I gotta somehow dance the intellect dance, and play around with, with uh, you know, being able to entertain a materialist atheist position. And, and be able to play with that a little bit. And, and I do believe this whole thing began with the question, uh, that your question, you know, by no coincidence, I'm sure, from Portland, Oregon, about the connection of psychedelics to prophecy. And, 
And, uh, and, but I do believe that that's part of the key to the whole, the whole equation. Because what happens when someone ingests certain compounds and it does whatever it does in their brain, they, um, now we know the brain science of it, but, but there's things that take place there that aren't explainable. They just aren't explainable. That, that only the witnesser, the actual observer of the, of the, the experience, has a lot of things that just will never ever be explained in brain science and, and is changed forever as a result in ways that are just very interesting. Um, for one example is they, they go up an entire index point in the personality trait called openness, which is not possible. I mean, the, as far as science was concerned, wherever you sit in openness is going to be closed and not opening as we discussed earlier as neuroplasticity is going down as you get older and more of what you see is going to be predictive models uh, and less of what you actually see and yet people will go up an entire index point of openness and openness is a very good trait it's a very good trait I mean why do you think most businesses you know shut down in 20-30 years even the biggest ones will be gone in 20-30 years because it's very hard to keep openness when you're at the top of a business. But if you're not open, you can't allow the percolation necessary of the dynamism of people actually on the streets and the ground using your product that are going to percolate up and have you reinvent yourself as a company. And that, that doesn't come easily. So the, 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 um, the high-tech world uh, prides itself on the index, on, on the uh, character trait, the personality trait called openness. They pride themselves on that. And you see they're doing a great job. They're really out there. And they're, I always wonder how much they're not letting us see, meaning how much they already, you know, how far could that iPhone or Samsung go, but they're only letting us know so much so we keep buying, you know. I don't know if there's what's called a, either planned obsolescence, which we're all nervous about, but there's also, uh, it's also a very um, strategic release of technology. Who knows what they know, but I'll tell you one thing's for sure is they have built into them, they have the openness. And not only that, but they encourage their employees, and especially the higher they get in this system, to be involved in, in the ingestion of psychedelic compounds. And uh, uh, Google in Silicon Valley is famous for, for the, uh, the microdosing of LSD. That's, what, that's just part of working for Google, you know. You, 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 you can give up your Starbucks, you know, because you, you got other things going on. But, but it's creating a, a greater creativity, a greater motivation, a, a, a mental acuity. And, uh, and it's driving the high-tech world to the next generation in ways that could never have happened without it. So, so the, uh, the, this, the, um, where, where are we at on the... Um, yeah, we're on expansive, but but specific. We we're being a little more. Oh, we're talking about openness, but but the, I was speaking about the sacred place of dedication, and which has no mind, which has no mind to it, and meaning you need mind to get there. But once you're there, you go into a place that that's beyond the mind, beyond the intellect. And that's why you witness miracles there if you live there. It's a great place to be. Oh, I was explaining why we need to go there for various reasons. So you don't get anywhere without it. 
Um, you have to be very careful of it to make sure you don't wind up dedicated and surrender to the wrong things. Um, but there's something else I wanted to say about it. Oh, is that it brings us full circle back to the first rung of Jacob's ladder, which is, I'm in. I'm in. Which is another way of saying, I'm in. I'm in. You know, I'm in. Because when you're in, I'm in no matter what, including how I'm feeling, as we spoke about. But even I'm in no matter what the facts are, I'm in. And that's why it's so important you check the facts before you go in. But as long as you got the facts straight, you got to go to that place of dedication. And, and uh, risking, risking political correctness right now, um, this could be an, a difference between the Hasidic and the Litvish communities in, in a way. Is, uh, well, I don't know about the modern communities, but maybe. Is... Um, is that the, the, the non-Hasidic Ashkenazim and many of the Sephardic traditions that have gotten involved with the yeshiva community of Ashkenazim, uh, they pride themselves on, on rationalism. They pride themselves on rationalism, but that is not the place of surrender. That is not the place to surrender. And the Hasidic movement prides itself on devotion. It prides itself on that. Now, show me any dedicated rationalist, I promise you he's surrendered. And show me any surrendered Hasidic guy, and I promise you he's got a lot of intellect going on and, and uh, plenty of rationalism in there too. And it's just the nature of the Jew. You're not going to find one without the other. All I'm talking about is themes. Themes that we're going to drive home. So the Hasidic movement's going to drive home the dedication more. That's going to be the theme. And the rationalists are going to drive home rationalism. Either way, they're both going to have a level of surrender. But I personally, I personally want to be where the magic is. And the magic's in the vulnerability that comes with surrender. That's the magic. And I'm part of a magical community of Hasidic people. Really magical. I mean, they really do not... You know, their, their, their motto is don't tell me the odds in everything they do and it's great I just love the way they, they interact and, and there's just no limitations and it's throughout the system it's not I know non-Hasidic people who live that way as individuals but I'm talking about communal like they, like they know somehow that it's enough that you are dedicated to something and it will come true and and, they, and it comes with being in a place whose theme is irrational devotion. And it's, I like that. And I like the magic. I like the magic. I, get, I benefit a lot from that magic. And I'm so happy to train my kids in it. Because my kids are like, definitely don't tell me the odds, kids. And, um, and I think the wonderment of the magic keeps you young. And I, and I think it... It, you have a more surface joy. You know, sometimes I go into synagogues, and this can go for Hasidic ones as well, where I know these people have a deep, deep joy. But on the surface, like the actual, you know, because joy is on a continuum. There's deeper joy, and then there's like just smiling and laughing and stuff like that. But there are, there are sometimes I'll walk into a synagogue where you can come in. 
sometimes I'll walk into a synagogue and there is no trace of joy there at all. And it's Shabbat. And everyone's in their finest. And they're singing happy songs. But if it's the Hasidic community, they're doing something like really heavy, like it's a heavier song. And it's, you know, it's like, and uh, maybe it's a non Hasidic shul or yeshiva shul doing something kind of joyous. You know, but there's just no one smiling and no one's clapping and no one's hand, holding hands for this little dance part here and you know it's a, clearly we should be a we should be linked up but if I started holding people's hands they would just pull their hands away like you're embarrassing me you know there's a certain it's got a Yiddish word called ernskeit. But to me, it's a, I believe it's a bluff. You know, it's, it's just, we're not going to express joy here. And because, and you know, we're, we're, this is all too important. You know, and, but to me, that's an, ex, that's, it's not just, it's not just that part of the spectrum is being hidden. It's that it does. It's not there. You understand? It's 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 being uh, people. They're rationalizing that it's there. It's just not time for that or something. And by the way, they do let it all go once in a while. Like pour them with enough alcohol. Those guys are hysterical. And and because uh, it's just all coming out. You know, like like I don't do that because like, mine's coming out. And I'm I'm on a general release of joy on a daily basis. And pour them's going to come out more, but. It's not going to be that distinguishable from the day before Purim. And whereas these guys, oh my God, it's like, I mean, it really comes out. And, and sometimes they get that way towards the end of a wedding where it's finally like broken through. In the, you know, an end of, and it had to be their kids' wedding, by the way, <laughs> not the guests. But you, you will see it start shining through at the end of their wedding. And, and suddenly they've moved into that place. And it's, so it's available, but it's not. They don't have access to it. Now, if I had to choose between the two, I'll take the deeper joy any day. I mean, deeper joy is like way bigger than the external edge of the spectrum, but but um, but you can't pretend you're happy if you don't have full access to the spectrum of joy. You know, you gotta have the deeps and the you know, you can't, you can't play off as happy. Which leads me to another thought, if you don't mind me thinking this one out real quick, is you're only going to be as well as your leader. I'm not saying we can't surpass a leader. You can surpass your leader. But in a tradition where you're, especially the Jewish tradition, where we're really focused on our leaders, like our kavod for, it's called a kavod Torah, but it's also called a it's the, the dedication to our, our wise. Yeah, you can go. I'm, I'm just going on and on here. So you can go at any point. I Thank God I've had a long format for the worst reasons is uh, Rabbi Neckemeyer had the flu this week. But I, I will wrap it up eventually. The, uh, but anyone who needs to go certainly can. You. So you're welcome. So the... Um,
because I, I mean, I'm, I'm an hour and a half into, I'm an hour and a half into my 50 minute class. So, or maybe an hour and 20 minutes into our 50 minute class. Long format though is the way to go. I mean, anyone know the intellectual dark web? You know, 50 minutes you don't get anywhere. You know? So, um, but here's the thing I want to think out here is that, and especially in Jewish tradition where we're really, really focused on our leaders showing us the way and emulating them. And in fact, the Rambam even says that the commandment to emulate God is to emulate the wise man, meaning emulate the tzaddik, the emulate the holy person. could be the holy woman, too. Emulate the holy. Why? Because Rambam says, now, by the way, he's very rationalist, Rambam. He's not into the esoteric, although he knew a ton about the esoteric. Oh, come on in. Table for uh, two, three. Perfect timing, ladies. Just bring that third chair up, and you can sit all together there. I like people staying together. Anyway, as soon as you sit, because these chairs are really loud, I'll go back to what I was saying. So um, just to catch you up, ladies, what we're talking about right now, I just switched subjects. What we're talking about is how, you know, in the Jewish world, we really want to emulate our leaders. So what if your leader, what if your leader isn't a particularly happy person? What if your leader is not particularly holy? Meaning they know a ton. They just know a ton. Like they, they've got all of Torah in their back pocket. But they're, they're, they're just kind of rationalists. You know, they're not so into the holy part. You know, there's a lot of holy part. I mean, how much do you think Judaism has more of? Instructions? Or, meaning just if you were literally just to add the, the documents... Add the doc, written documents, including all our oral tradition that's written. What do you think we have more of? Which stack goes higher? And obviously, the stack's taller than the building here. But if you stacked them, it would go taller than this. I don't know. It'd be like the Empire State Building. Which one stacks higher? This, the information about instructions of God's will, like how to do God's will, which many Jewish leaders, that's their specialty, and that's who we're trying to emulate. Or all the material of holiness, the Kabbalistic, realities and you know the Jacob's Ladder stuff stuff that climbs towards heaven which do you think would be a hot, taller stack which body of information so the halacha same what do you ladies say halacha yeah. so okay so either the same or maybe the halacha now why would you ever guess that you might guess that because you figure for every spirit every law there's probably a spiritual reality about it so it's one to one it sounds and you probably think that way because you're from the tradition where everyone just studies what to do no one ever studies that stuff so how much could there be so it turns out that I don't know the actual ratio but it's it's somewhere over five times more information in the Kabbalistic esoteric Jacob's Ladder spirituality ladder Something like five times more. And I can explain to you why. And you'll see how exactly, Sam. And that's like, let's say there's a law, for example. I mean, you can really mention any law. Anyone want to mention a law? I don't care what it is positive commitment, negative commitment. Someone want to mention something? Any commitment. Pick a commandment, any commandment. What? Shabbos. Yeah, so Shabbos, okay? 
So Chavez has a lot of laws. She chose a massive body of laws, like massive. And, uh, you know, for example, I have a five-volume thing called the 39 malachas, which are the 39 acts of manipulating matter that you cannot do on, on Shabbat. Yeah? So it's five volumes like this. And it's just off one word in the Torah, malacha. Don't do malacha. And it's this big. So for sure we know that the ratio of words in the Torah, malacha, to laws is going to be way different. There's going to be a lot more on malacha. Now, in the in Shabbos, the laws of Shabbos, which mostly are negative, thou shalt not. There's a reason why there's thou shalt nots. Why our holiest day of the week is mostly thou shalt not. You know why? Because for something special to occur, you have to have a lot of limitation involved. You have to have a lot of limitation. Like, let's say someone would like to enjoy a concert. So there's limitation. Shut your phone off. Shut your mouth off. Be quiet, especially if it's classical concert. You know, and there's rules there. Stay in your seat. You know, you go sit in someone else, go poach someone's seat, and then they come. You know, it's going to disturb everybody. You know, so marriage, like there's a lot of don't do's there, man. You want to ignore the don't do's in your marriage, good luck having any intimacy. So the holiest day of the whole week is Shabbat. And what is achievable on Shabbat by you refraining from those 39 acts? Is connection with Hashem. And that's going to be, you know, again, it's just going to be a massive body of information of what is available to connect to Hashem on Shabbat compared to what you must refrain from. You understand? give you an example of a positive. You brought up a negative commandment, but I'll bring up a positive commandment. I, I mean, again, I can choose anything. Uh, and even something very arbitrary, like uh, tefillin. Tefillin has you know, hundreds of laws. I mean, there's more laws than just the black boxes and all the world's religions put together. But the uh, tefillin, let's take an arbitrary law in tefillin. So it's just a little law. It just says, make sure your tefillin is above the hairline. Little law, not a big deal. Just don't let it drop below the hairline. And if you have a receding hairline, you've got to remember where it was. But make sure the tefillin's below the hairline. Uh, sorry, above the hairline. And, and so um, I always feel bad for these Chabadniks because many Chabad groups, Chabad synagogues, all they got left is Persians who are willing to come. You're like, who's willing to come? So Persians. So the problem is in the Persian tradition, tefillin go on the forehead. Yeah, because whatever Persians went through over there and their, you know, whatever their relationship to halacha was, I don't know that evolution, but somehow they lost that particular inf- piece of information. So I, so when whenever you talk to Chabadniks with synagogues filled with Persians, they like, it's their nightmare. It's their nightmare to, to have this whole community of people with their tefillin like sticking off their foreheads. And then, and how do you know which ones are really students of the rabbi there and not just happy this rabbi's dedicated his life to give these Persians somewhere they can go on Shabbat? Is the, the, you'll see there will be like one in ten of them will have his tefillin in the right spot. And I go up to the rabbi, yeah, I just happen to be there because I'm staying in a hotel nearby for the night. And so I'll go to the rabbi, I'll say, who's that one? He's like, he's my student. Like, he's my student. You know, that one's mine. 
that Musad over there is my student. So, the, um, can you send me that water, please? You can throw it. So, anyway, so what I wanted to share was, um, a principle that you're only going to grow as great as your mentor. You may grow beyond your mentor, and your, your mentor's job is to make you beyond him. Like, the biggest joy of a mentor in Judaism is when you've become obsolete, where your students have surpassed you. That's the goal of the mentor, is when you're no longer necessary. Meaning, every rabbi has to have the goal to lose his job. I would be overjoyed if someone could take my three to four o'clock and nail it more than I nail it. And and if he were my student, that would be like the greatest badge of honor. And I thank God, because I'm doing this so many years, I've been sitting through many classes of my students over the years who know light years more Torah because I'm so busy loving the world that I, you know, I'm not the guy sitting and studying all day. So so I, so they have been, many of these guys are that guy who sits and studies all day. And I've been able to sit through their classes. I've been able to call them when I have halakhic questions that I don't know the answer to. And I just happen to know he knows that cold. And I'll call him and get the answer real quick. And that's my joy. So the mentor has to see himself being surpassed by everyone. And every rabbi, a successful rabbi, should lose his job. Because he built his community so much that he's no longer the best suited for the position compared to the people in the community that he built. And the... But us as the community, you know, you're looking at that height of your mentor, that's probably as far as you're going to go, unless you, thank God, go beyond, which, please God, we'll all do. But Right? Your mentor has to be the person that's full of joy. And when I say joy, the full spectrum... They're not missing part of it, because if they're missing part of it, there's some dysfunction there. They can't be joyous only deep down. They have to also have at their, at their fingertips the, the external kind of fluffy joy. The other thing is that, is that they have to be holy. Why? Because that's what you want. I mean, don't you want to be like the holiest person? Don't you want to be so holy? Well, then you better have a mentor that's holy. Well, how's you, how can you have a mentor that's holy and joyous if they haven't, if they don't have, have never, um, uh, they've never confronted the the part of Judaism that's about holiness, you know. And that part is called, that part is called. Uh, I'll write it down since we're making a distinction here. It's called uh, in Hebrew, Limude Hashem. Limude Hashem. And then there's another thing called Limude. I'm running out of room there. Versus Limude. Ratzon Hashem. These are two separate bodies of wisdom in Judaism. Limudei Hashem, 
and Limudei Ratzon Hashem. This one is the study of God, which is the holiness. The study of God and leads to the holiness. And this is the uh, this is the study. I'm going to run out of room. Study of God's will. Study of God's will. And that leads to knowledge. And uh, most specifically, alignment. More specifically, alignment. It leads to... Because if you don't know God's will, if you haven't studied the laws, what God wants... So you will be out of alignment with God's will and wisdom. So you have to study this stuff to be in alignment. Another way of putting it is the word spiritual. Spiritual, the spirit is here and the ritual is here. Yeah, spiritual. And so the spirit of, of what we're doing here, I mean, the whole point of it all is not, what's the, why is this, why is doing God's will not the point of it all? Why is that not the point of it all? Why is doing God's will not the point? It's not a fair question for these three ladies that came later because they missed the Jacob's Ladder part. What rung is doing God's will? The very first rung of Jacob's ladder. What's that called in Hebrew? Ev. Shif. Ev. Shifchat Hashem. Eved Hashem. What is it? And what's it engendered by? What's the definition of someone who's a servant of God on that level? What did we say? What was its definition? The first rung in a ladder? Slave, good, which means I serve God no, no matter what. Whether I'm feeling it, I'm not feeling it, I'm, I'm into it, I understand what I'm doing, I don't understand what I know. You know, like how much do I really know about like all the massive amounts of information what you get over studying Kabbalah? Like, for example, I mentioned that one arbitrary law of having the tefillin over the hairline. Why? Because the tefillin have to be, and now we go in the Kabbalah, has to be over this fontanelle. The fontanelle is, uh, I like that name because it sounds like the fountain of God. It's a, you know, it's a medical term, but it's the part of the brain that if you feel a baby's head soft there, we, ha we all have an aperture right there, and the tefillin has to go over that aperture. And the only way we know it will go over that aperture if you make sure the tefillin doesn't drop below your hairline. What's the big deal of that aperture? Well, that aperture sits over the cerebral cortex. That's your frontal lobe. Cerebral cortex is where all your neurons are that just fire or don't fire. They, they are basically atheists because they, they catch all the smell and the touch and the sight and they see this world and they're basically atheists. And, and, the, and we have to impress upon our, at least men do, have to impress upon their cerebral cortex, the atheist in them, the oneness of God and that that's what's really going on. So, I could keep going there, by the way. I'm not going to keep going there on what the tefillin do over the fontanelle. 
but I could keep going and going. In fact, I've taught an over an hour class just on why the tefillin goes over the font. Now, how long did it take me to say the law? Two seconds. Tefillin above the hairline. Done. I've taught probably a good hour class on just what the esoteric knowledge talks about when it comes to the why that is, why that's important, which is the spirit behind it, or the why, and the ritual is the what. And spending your whole life working towards becoming someone who has as much knowledge as an unhappy, overly, you know, I shouldn't say overly, someone, an unhappy uh, person with a predisposition of remembering lots of facts about how to align themselves with God. This alignment is probably going to lead me to be an unhappy person and a an unhappy knowledgeable person. Whereas if I emu- if I, my mentor is someone climbing Jacob's ladder with diligence and dedication and sacrifice and devotion and surrender and I'm choosing to emulate that person, and that person has, not a lot new, but has the whole trajectory of, of joy, from the deeper joy to the you know, smiley and external joy. They, these people are out there, I promise you. In both the Hasidic and non-Hasidic communities, they exist. And I make that person my mentor. I mean, you tell me. I, uh, uh, what's your first name again? Jacob, sorry. Jacob, you tell me, if you saw two in a vacuum, like there's me and then there's another one of me, and one spends all his time dedicating to, to, dedicating to emulate a rabbi who's mastered this, and then there's another one of me who's dedicated my life to a guy who's also mastered this, but he's, this is his goal and where his mastery is going. Who's going to wind up happy and holy? He's going to wind up happy and holy. And I I just want to say one more thing. And this is going to sound a little crazy. And again, I'm risking a lot by saying any of this stuff because I'll probably start getting angry emails. But, and maybe I'm crazy, but I've met people who are nowhere on Jacob's ladder but they're looking at Jacob's ladder. This is not Jacob's ladder. This is the first rung. I've met people who are desperate to climb Jacob's ladder, who don't know their knee from their elbow in Judaism, but they know enough to know that that's what they're after. And they're going to study, and they're going to align themselves, and they're, they're, maybe they already are, or maybe, maybe the guy's already been keeping Judaism for three, four years, but he's still, you know, I mean... <coughs> takes forever to even like look somewhat normal in the community and and uh, but there's something about having him at my Shabbos table compared to a very learned guy who's wearing a business suit and a necktie and a mafia hat there's 
something that who knows ten times more. Ten times more the guy sitting across from him at my Shabbos dinner. There's something about the guy dedicated to holy and happy, to Jacob's ladder, that, and I don't even know what it is, but there's just something about it that I'm really enjoying him as his host, whoever it is, and there's plenty of people, and sometimes they look exactly the same, but I know what they're both up to. One of them's totally not into Jacob's ladder, and and the other one's totally into Jacob's ladder, and they're both in the same yeshiva, and they're all, they're dressed, wearing the same suit and the same tie and everything. And they, but it's just a pleasure being with that person. While the other one's a bit of a stink bug, you know, I'm I'm thinking like let's bench when I look at him, and when the other guy's there, I'm thinking let's open up another book on you know the parsha. Let's look at something else on the parsha. Let's go deeper on the parsha. The other guy's like. Why don't we just end this meal here? You know, you ate, get going. So, I don't know what it is. And I, I'm telling you, that's why I said I'm just going to share some thoughts. Because I, I haven't, I don't know where I'm going with any of this stuff. But Isn't it true that it's just part of the bread? No, not at all. Because you, this, people will consider the spark for growth in this enough of a spark. Whereas I'm saying this, something smells differently when this is the spark for growth. By the way, these people are very into what's called tikkun uh, amidas, uh, building good character. They, they've kind of they've kind of supplanted this with good character. You understand? Like they really are working on selfishness and ego and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it could. Yeah, um, for those who didn't hear, is is uh, what's your name? Zeb. Zeb's bringing up that this could very well be correlated to personality traits. And what's it, here for? it may be, but but what's interesting about that is that when you're born into a community that is about this, and you're this guy, you could really suffer. <laughs> and if you're and if you're born for this, and you're in this community, you could really suffer. So it's it's a good question. It could be. Could be. It's just a matter of diet for every soul. Different souls, are doing. and then there's a question: If you're a woman, I mean, I can count on one hand how many women I know that have gotten anywhere in this study. You understand? Like I can literally name them and exhaust the list on one hand. Now, of course, there's tons more that I don't know. I mean, I don't know everybody in the world, but you know, women don't have so much access to that stuff and you have to know Aramaic and you have to be able to read Rashi script and you gotta you gotta have access to such svarim and and you and you can't get anywhere in it, even with all that you can't get anywhere without a, a mentor taking you there and I promise you none of the men I know over there are taking any women there you know just because there's so much separation in gender that that's just not what's going on over there 
It's not co-ed at all. So, and there's nothing wrong with those women. But then I think about my wife. My wife has a tremendous appetite for spirituality, like tremendous, more than mine. And she has found one of the one of the women I can name on one hand. She found one and has made her her teacher. So she does have that mentor, and in uh, her appetites, I would say is even bigger than mine for that. So she's proving that gender isn't a barrier for that. But then again, as Zed said, maybe it's just personality traits. Like I married a woman like me who has that as a goal. But I think the biggest proof that maybe is against what you're saying, Zev, or maybe you can show me where it still sticks, is that, is that throughout most of Jewish history, these were one-stop shops. You know, that's Rebbe Akiva saying something in the Mishnah, but that's Rebbe Akiva saying something in the Zohar. That's Rebbe Shimon saying something in the about Hilchos Shabbos, Psik Reisha below Yamos, Venichale, you know, like uh, the, we're talking about Dovashen and Miskam. That's Rebbe Shimon, but that's Rebbe Shimon who who scribed the Zohar. You understand? So it was it was one stop shop throughout most of history. It wasn't like today where we're so far gone that like when you have a halakha question, you call that one. When you have a Kabbalistic question, you call that one. When you have a question in, you know, in your life, you know, uh, like a life counseling question, you call that one. Today, everything's specialized because we're, you know, really far down the rabbit hole of Jewish exile. So it's, but it, believe me, it wasn't personality traits back then. It was one stop shop. They were this. This was called the rung, first rung of the ladder of Jacob's ladder. As I serve God, no matter what. And then there was climbing the ladder. So. But uh, but you do you do notice people have different appetites. People do. I notice my appetites just different than other people. When it comes to nigla revealed Torah and nistra hidden Torah, like I have a, I have a different appetite than other people. I, my diet requires different amounts than others. But again, we're in a crazy generation. So, you know, that's might have something to do with it. Plus, there's social reasons, maybe my upbringing. I'm also, you know, I can, I, I'm guilty as charged of coming in on a major Balchuva wave buzz, like a crazy buzz. You know, and remember the 90s here, and you were here already in the 80s. What? Remember those buzzy times? I mean, I'm guilty as charged. I came in in some crazy buzz, and this place was like people were just walking around like, like hallelujah, you know. It was like the craziest time to be here. You just couldn't believe it, both in quantity of people and quality of of what was happening. It was just the craziest renaissance that may be uh, historically unprecedented and never to be repeated, perhaps. But, well, until Mashiach, you really felt Mashiach was coming. Like, we were all shocked that Mashiach didn't come on a daily basis. And, and the, um, anyway, the, uh, but I'm guilty as charged as, as uh, being involved in a high. And so the fact that I 
<laughs> the fact that I instantly was gravitating towards the high stuff, you know, and spending a lot of time in Sfat and like finding the teachers who had the joy and had the had the holiness, you know, like I I had to find them and and then dedicate my path to theirs and emulate them and you understand so that's how I came into this whole thing, you know. So I came in when everyone was high. Okay, it was a pleasure. Uh, those who sat through the whole thing, good going. Um, those w- watching or listening, please click on all the appropriate buttons. Okay, that's share, subscribe, comment. Uh, what else do you got to share? Uh, all those things. Click on all those things. And obviously, the, the join the club, the yomtobmediaclub.com, and help, uh, get, help us get this out there hey, as much as possible. Be in Brooklyn next week, and uh, the November 10th in Brooklyn, and November 17th in Muncie for possible use seminars. Please join me. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.